this is more proof that we're in the metal transition, right? Where we're no longer just adding solar panels and moving on. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today is April 21st, Earth Day Eve. Happy mm-hmm. Earth Day Eve, everybody. I'm Eric Planey. I am Lucas Finko. And together, we are the casually dressed in black Pirates of Clean. <laughs> Garg. Uh, everyone we wear coats and like you know fedoras and you know we were we were like oh let's step it up a little bit now we're like we're slumming it well when are you going to heal up so we can get the old uh pirate background that we so love it'll uh, come soon i start my physical therapy tomorrow uh mr trusting my walkers right here to get me by until then but um feeling better every day the knee is getting better so hopefully in a few weeks, I'll be a little bit more mobile and I'll be back up in the office upstairs. So, Awesome. The, somehow the sun is still setting in New York behind me. So. There's no sun today. It's pretty cloudy out here in the, in the Hudson Valley of New York City, New York. How you doing, Lucas? Good? I'm good. What, what do you have for us this week, Eric? What's going on? Oh, I mean, there's a lot going on. First off, it is Earth Day tomorrow. So I think everyone is celebrating, reflecting, and hopefully posturing and pushing legislators to do more to help the environment to do more at their companies to do more um but the one thing i want to bring up quickly maybe lucas you could pull it up many of you know i'm on the board of directors of the greatest organization in my opinion the city parks foundation in new york city their website is cityparksfoundation.org and what i love about them is the city parks foundation is we do all the programming in almost all like all of new york city's parks now we don't cover all 300 plus but in all five boroughs, we have programming in sports, in music, in arts, uh, but especially in green education. And that's where I'm very proud of. Uh, we have a program called Learning Gardens, where we have four or five gardens in the city in which students are coming. They're actually active and growing sustainable foods. And, you know, they take the uh, food and vegetables home. It's fantastic. We have a program called Coastal Classrooms. We actually monitor the water quality of New York's great waterways. It's a phenomenal program. And so on this Earth Day, if you're looking for something to give, to feel better about contributing to really benefiting society, especially if you live in the New York City metro, I encourage you to go to cityparksfoundation.org backslash learn to learn about our green education programs and backslash donate to donate. You know, I, I've been saying with my friends on LinkedIn, if you give, if I can get 22 of my friends on Earth Day, the 22nd, I would feel so much better about things. So Let's do it, folks. Let's get out there and let's contribute. Uh, Lucas, you were a key part of a fundraiser and we did at the Tesla uh, dealership in the Meatpacking District a couple years ago. And that was a great night. And so hopefully yeah. societies, everything's opened back up. We'll have something similar in the coming years. Yeah, come on. You need to have another Tesla event and then I'll donate again. <laughs> uh, Tesla, you know, they were so great. They gave us the property and, uh, you know, they were showing off. I think, I think the Model Y had just come out at the time when we had the event. So everybody was buzzing about the, the why. So it was a lot of fun and, you know, really cool to be hanging out in the swanky meatpacking district, which, you know, that's usually cool and trend, more cool and trendy for me than I normally hang out. <laughs> yeah, they had a swanky, like decked out Tesla in there. It was really cool to, get, to have an event there. So that was, that was great. It was. So anyways, thank you folks uh, for indulging me. But really, my heart and soul is with the City Parks Foundation. So please give if you can. All right. You want to go to the articles? Uh, yeah, we do that. We should do our disclaimers, right? So uh, before we begin, as always, views and opinions expressed by Lucas and I are simply those of ourselves and not any organizations we are affiliating with. 
And also we're asking you to please do your homework. If any of the companies we talked about are um, public entities or they have publicly traded securities, uh, please consult with a registered investment representative uh, before either buying or selling any of those securities of the companies we speak about. Don't, don't listen to us solely. Thank you, Eric, for that. That's actually really good because I'm going to talk about listed companies um, in my headlines for uh, this week. So this one's interesting. This came out of uh, Plug Power Inc. Tuesday, April 19th. Uh, Plug Power is going to supply Walmart with green hydrogen to fuel the retailer's fleet of material handling, handling lift trucks. So this is fantastic. These are these small, I believe they're talking about forklifts, right? Forklifts. Um, so up to 9,500 lift trucks across Walmart uh, distribution and fulfillment centers. So they're all going to go on liquid green hydrogen for fuel. And they're trying to support the retailer's goal of zero emissions future by 2040. This is great news. This, you know, we've been talking about hydrogen quite a bit. Uh, we're fans. We'd like to see more of it. So this, to me, was a big win. And I wanted to celebrate with all you guys on this one. Um, yeah, definitely check this out. It's it's not gray hydrogen. It's it's not greenwashing. This is the real stuff. So very cool. So how are they how are they saying that they will fuel these lift trucks with green hydrogen? Like where where will the hydrogen be produced? Do they have any of that identified yet? It says plugs uh, vertically integrated green hydrogen ecosystem. Yeah, I don't know what the details are. It's going to be really on on plug power, but plug power has to has to do it. So, yeah, and they make a good point. If you think about it, if you take hydrogen and combine oxygen from the air, what do you get? You get water. Water is the exhaust. So that's really cool. Well, that's great. We'll all be a little bit more humid and sweaty inside Walmart. So. <laughs> well, this is just in the distribution center, right, where they have all the forecasts. I know. This, I think this is great. Um, I think, you know, it's funny, green hydrogen is going to get spoken about more and more. I think I'm going to talk about it a little bit here in in one of my articles. But, you know, the thing about Walmart that is great is when Walmart commits to something like this, you're helping the whole industry scale up and you're helping Mm -hmm. that whole industry becomes financeable too. So hydrogen projects are going to be looked at more favorably by the banks, by the project finance practitioners. So I think this is where it's not just a good... PR move for Walmart is not just good for the environment from Walmart and their ESG goals. This helps the whole green hydrogen industry altogether. Yeah, I think I think here they say uh, the company is targeting seventy TPD. I assume that's terapounds of green hydrogen production by the end of this year, and on track for five hundred in North America by twenty twenty five and a thousand by twenty twenty eight. That's pretty crazy, crazy growth. That's fantastic. All right. My next one, I saw this on Reuters. Uh, This is a new announcement from the Biden administration. They launched a $6 billion nuclear power credit program. Okay, so um, if you didn't know, a lot of uh, nuclear power plants are actually shutting down in the U.S. And they're being replaced by natural gas generation. So we're going the wrong way on carbon output uh, on this one. And so the issue, I believe... I don't think permitting is the issue. I think it's money. Uh, They're no longer competitive with the low natural gas prices that existed up until a month ago. (laughs) Uh, And obviously solar and wind um, energy prices are very low. So they introduced a $6 billion. Sounds like a lot of money. 
until you start doing the math. So bear with me here. Get your calculator out. 93 reactors in the U.S. Uh, 12 have closed since 2013. So that's a lot of carbon uh, that's going the wrong way. There was another few that are scheduled to close that they're trying to stop. They're going to um, have this incentive money. Um, so it sounds like a lot of money, but this is to be distributed gradually, ending in 2035. So that's $1.2 billion over four years. So what is that? $300 million each year divided by about 100 plants. That's $3 million a plant on average? that's not much money at all, is it? I don't know if that's going to save the industry. So at first I thought this was fantastic. And then I got my calculator out and I realized, I don't know if this is enough. I mean, $6 billion sounds like a lot of money, right? So it'll be interesting. I hope it succeeds. Um, You know, and there's also this quote from PG&E out in California. As a regulated utility, we were required to follow the energy policies of the state. And at this time, the state has not changed its position regarding the future of nuclear energy in California. So that to me means that California wants to shut them down. Anyhow, yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. We're going to have to watch this. Yeah, a lot going on here. I think first off, you know, $6 billion is not a lot for the nuclear industry. I mean, it's 3 to $5 billion, I think, to build one modern-day large-scale nuclear plant. So, but if it is some sort of greater subsidy that comes in, uh, on either a new build or saving something, it may be enough for the bankers who have all the project finance debt to these uh, to these projects to feel comfortable about either refinancing or refinancing, having a little bit of uh, greater equity cushion on them, right? So, and then last, I would say they're probably going to see if this works as a pilot program, even though it seems like they're not calling it that, to determine whether or not to keep going forward. Um, I still get upset that because of the natural gas price drop in the early 2010s, the whole um, mm-hmm. nuclear industry went to pot. Everyone stopped their R&D. And all of a sudden, the idea of taking coal plants offline and in the same physical spot, putting in an SMR and plugging right into that grid, uh, that all went away. And I wish that would come back because I think gas prices are going to stay up for the next couple of years. And regardless of whether they go up and down, we're going to start taking long term. And I think those are supposed to be a little cleaner too from a nuclear waste standpoint. You know, a, a nuclear is going to be part of the solution. We need to solve these problems in the next five years. We don't have enough time to debate about nuclear when nuclear works and nuclear is safe. You know, um, knock on wood, the U.S. has been very good about safety and nuclear for a while. Let's hope it stays on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a good article. I, I enjoy it. I mean, it does give me hope that somebody at least sat down and looked at how to get to zero emissions in the power grid by 2035 and started noticing some things that they had to do. So I, I guess that's a good sign. And um, if that's true, I'm willing to bet you're going to see some more stuff coming out really soon. So we need and in that regard, it's encouraging you. Have you ever noticed now in modern sports broadcasts that they always have like a retired umpire from the sport in like the, in, you know, the New York office or whatever. And so when there's a questionable call, they always go to that guy. You and I need to have somebody from Princeton on standby with that big <laughs> document we talked about a year and a half ago mm-hmm. about the great roadmap to 2050. Yep. Because I'm curious what that Princeton document said about nuclear, because honestly, I don't remember. We're going to have to go back and look. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Like somebody needs to be saying, we need nuclear as part of the solution. Here's why. Otherwise, we can't get there. 
And, you know, if, if that's the case, then we have to get on board about promoting nuclear. Well, and maybe they did a calculation here and said, you know, what's the delta to get them to stay operating? Oh, three million a year. Well, three million times blah, blah, blah. And they got to six billion. I, I don't know. Maybe. We'll find out. We'll find out. It's a good start. <laughs> All right. Those are mine, Eric. Yeah, I've got the lion's share of the articles today. And I got to say, mm-hmm. this is probably the best group of four articles I've had in ages. I really <laughs> like that. Uh, this is a, a Lectrek.co, um, Michelle Lewis, April 18th. The first U.S. offshore wind farm has had no negative effect on fish, finds groundbreaking study. This is really important to me because this is really a good Earth Day story about sustainability. We all talk about the benefits of wind. Everybody talks about this downside, which is there's three downsides to wind, especially in offshore wind. One is, what do you do with the blades when they're done? It's hard to destroy them, hard to get rid of them. Number two, fish and birds, number two and three. Um, A lot of controversy out there about birds getting killed. A lot of controversy about what's, what will happen to fish. This study, if you want to scroll down, um, and this is off the, um, I think, the uh, Cape Cod offshore. Uh, and this is, I think, in conjunction with the Boston Globe, but the Journal of Marine Science, published in March 29th, was saying that not only has there been you know, benefits or has there not been any detriment to fish populations and fish schools, in some cases, at least one anecdotally and one more um, formally it's been found that populations increase because the schools of fish like to hang around the solid foundations of the wind farms. So I think the first grouping of wind, uh, wind turbines in uh, Cape are about a half a nautical mile away. The next grouping, I think, is supposed to be about one nautical mile away. Mm-hmm. The distance between is really uh, positive, if you will. There's no detriment. But you know, they're saying like Black Sea bass, I think they're saying we're actually more congregating around the wind farm. Yeah. You know, like there's Atlantic cod, they said we're congregating, but that's the one that said there wasn't enough to statistically support it with any conclusions. Oh, okay. Um, you know, they said not only were the fish like healthy, but they were eating more mussels. They said it was feeding off the mussels, growing around the turbines themselves. So, mm. so far, this is only one study and obviously more has to get done. Mm-hmm. But we're finally, there's a positive about this like, you know, environmental detriment of having wind turbines and offshore, there are good news and things can be done right. So everyone, this is really a good good news starter for me for my articles. Yeah, this is fantastic. It has been a sick, disgusting joke in the industry that the environmentalists are killing offshore wind projects. And so to find finally have a study that says no, it's actually good the environment it's good for fish populations um maybe we can finally put you know the silver knife in that store you know sick joke um and move on to to a better world so this is great and i have to say i don't think i saw it last week but there was an article about birds you know still being negatively impacted so Mm -hmm. i'll keep an eye i don't want to make it sound like i'm only promoting the positive story uh, I'll keep an eye on you know stories about birds, but let's find the solutions. If, if they're causing problems with the birds, there's a solution. Right. That's all there is. Great. Okay, so this one, first off, onegreenplanet.org. Uh, I don't think we've ever quoted uh, an article from them, but very nice website. You know, and this one is like a real big sustainability website. Everything from you know food sustainability to you know life and earth. But this is an article that actually Lucas and I both found 
this article in different publications, California set new energy record for using nearly 100% clean energy. This was uh, from two days ago, I think it was published three days ago. But this was really interesting. There was a day, I believe it was early April, potentially late March, in which 97, the California ISO reported 97% of uh, renewable energy on Sunday, April 3rd. That broke the old record of 96.4%, which was only set a week prior, uh, <laughs> according to the California ISO. So they say that going forward, this is going to happen more and more often. They do think that kind of like early to mid-spring is where you're going to see these higher numbers. And that's because of, I think, winds, but also placement of the sun uh, relative to a lot of farms in California. So again, this is just very similar to something that happened in Germany, where a couple of years ago, there was a day in Germany in the summer that Germany was running off 100% of the grid. That doesn't mean there's not problems with grid interconnectivity, with smart grid um, interaction, with whether or not we should have any behind the meter and front of the meter. All that still has to be worked out. But on a Sunday, and, and let's bear in mind, Sundays probably have a little bit less electricity usage because you're not having as much commercial operation. So bear that in mind. But regardless, California wants to be carbon-free in electricity generation by 2045. And are days like this, you know, 23, 22 years ahead of schedule in which you're generating a whole day of green energy and only green energy, it's a positive and it shows it can be done. Yeah, so this is the famous duck curve, which we've been talking about for decades. And the duck's belly has gone down to 3%. (laughs) It's going to be zero uh, any day now, probably, right? At at some point, they'll run on 100% renewable energy. And this is more proof that we're in the middle transition, right? We're we're no longer just adding solar panels and moving on. Uh, We're going to start to have curtailment in the middle of the day. Because there's going to be more solar generated than consumed. And so what are you going to do with it? And so you'll see things start to break. You're going to start to see negative power prices. And so when people come ask me, hey, when are we going to deploy storage on scale? I say, well, when this goes to 101%, storage will make sense from a business perspective. Because you'll be getting paid to take that power. And so your margins just shoot right up. And now it will start to make sense. So now's the time. If you, <laughs> if you have uh, any kind of technology that stores energy, now's the time to go to California and deploy. Because by the time you get it built, um, you'll be getting paid to take energy in the middle of the day. And then you can sell it for premium, premium prices uh, in the evening. So now, now. And think about this, Lucas. You know, putting in the context of some greater other economic changes happening in America. We are seeing a reshoring of manufacturing in America, right, for various reasons, from supply chain and national security. Think about the cost of manufacturing. One of the biggest impediments years ago, especially in here in the Northeast, electricity costs. So imagine if we actually get to the grid being so renewable efficient and heavy on renewables that you're going to have negative costs so that you're actually helping the manufacturer justify the economics of onshoring and creating better paying jobs, not just in the green energy sector, but in more traditional industries that are becoming more green as a result. Right. Imagine if they're, you know, they have zero energy cost and then offsets the higher cost of labor. I mean, it, it makes it much more lucrative to, to onshore. So another great article, um, you know, when Lucas and I both spot the same article, that that's good. <laughs> it's big. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. We can do this one. This one just made my day. This is actually 
this is science news for students, but I actually saw this story on CBS News last week, on CBS uh, Mornings. Could reusable, quote unquote, jelly ice cubes replace regular ice? This for me is one of my favorite stories, okay? A new eco-friendly material that is uh, fibrous, if you will, that would actually store water could actually create these jelly ice cubes that would last significantly longer than using ice when it comes to storage activities that demand using ice, right? And so this water gel, which I think they're calling it a hydro gel, sounds technical, but it's like, they say it almost has the same properties of jello, but the difference is jello eventually melts and turns into some sort of goopy thing, right? Before you eat it, if you leave it out. <laughs> jelly ice cubes, you can, they can be frozen and thawed again and again, and when they thaw, they don't like completely um, disintegrate. They still have a form in which you can refreeze. But they're lasting, and I think this is actually the CBS story, not this story here. Uh, I think they're saying that they're going to last something like two and a half times longer than regular ice. And they said the biggest benefit to jelly ice, and a lot of this is coming out of UC Davis, uh, maybe UCLA as well, but definitely UC Davis. The biggest benefit is going to be on the transportation of food, and especially on seafood. And one thing that really just blew my mind away was the statistic, I think, again, on CBS, 40% of uh, fish and seafood, by the time it's pulled out of the water and by the time it gets into the um, restaurant or grocery store, is lost due to spoilage. So when we're talking about food inflation, we're talking about food price increases, we're talking about the cost of electricity to cold store food, especially in transport. Imagine something like jelly ice that will last two and a half times, three and a half times longer than traditional ice at a fraction of the cost. That for me is significant. And that's why I was really excited about these quirky innovations that we haven't talked about in a while, but will actually have a meaningful impact on sustainability. Yeah, these are great. And they're biodegradable too, it says. That's even cooler. So that was the point. Another point CBS made is they're biodegradable. You can actually use them in composting. Yeah. So, I mean, talk about the double benefit, right? When you're actually done using it. But you can reuse them for a while. And then it sounds like when you're done, throw it in the composter. <laughs> That's perfect. I love it. Yeah. Great. It's one of my favorite stories in a long time. So uh, last but not least, uh, out of Recharge, which we, uh, we quote every now and then, really interesting. This kind of ties to the Walmart story that Lucas presented. After plotting battery electric future, truck maker Scania hedges bet with new hydrogen vehicles. So if you guys know Scania, it's a big name in Europe. You've probably seen your trucks, you know, either in Europe or globally. They're a Swedish truck maker. Uh, they've been owned for a little while by Volkswagen. And they were really committed to doing an all-electric battery truck as their green transition. They actually quoted, I think, a year or two ago, completely poo-pooing green hydrogen. <laughs> they decided in a turn in the 180 turn that they're actually going to start looking at a pilot program, I think at Cummins. And they're going to work on 1,000 betas of a new um, hydrogen vehicle. And I think what's important about this is a couple of things. One is they're feeling that there's enough activity in green hydrogen that making a hydrogen truck is worth doing so, at least on an experimental beta basis, to see if it technologically can prove itself, it can be durable, and then it can be scalable. And that's where the economics of hydrogen come into play. I think something is afoot here that isn't reported in this article. And I think it goes back to what we've been talking about for the last two episodes on the tragic situation in Ukraine and its impact on Europe. 
all of a sudden green hydrogen is being talked about way more than it was a year ago in Europe mm-hmm. as a solution to banning the import of natural mm-hmm. fossil fuels from Russia. So then if you're going to be mm-hmm. producing green hydrogen for power, I think other um, companies, especially auto OEMs based in Germany, are probably feeling the heat from uh, government leaders to look at application for green hydrogen. So again, going back to the Walmart article, we can scale it up globally. It makes sense and we can deploy it. And there's more than one outlet. So home energy, all the way to you know industrial energy, all the way to things like uh, vehicle transportation. So this is a really good article. And again, I'm not trying to be conspiracy theorist, but I think it's definitely worth pointing out that there's a reason behind the scenes why green hydrogen is probably being talked a little bit more in Europe. Yeah, you know what I had made the connection to was the article we had a couple months ago about uh, offshore wind farm being used for green hydrogen production, right? Wasn't that in the Netherlands? Uh, I mean, I wonder if this is going to be a customer, right? I think Denmark is actually building that, like they, they say that whole like island, if you will, that is going to have like where maritime ships can pull up and actually get fueled with hydrogen. Oh, right, right. So anyhow, that's the connection I made. If they're going to start producing, you know, green hydrogen, somebody's got to consume it. So that means the manufacturer has to build something that well, runs on it, right? So I think you and I are looking at the same same coin from different angles. Yeah. I think it's just creating that ecosystem, right? And right. I think because of everything happening in the geopolitical world, there's a little bit more pressure on this. Again, this isn't something that just came out of the nowhere. So it's probably been talked about well before the Ukraine situation. Right. But I think it was accelerated because of the Ukraine situation. Yeah, I think they talk about they're in some uh, Spanish consortium for green hydrogen. Yeah. So, yeah, this takes a lot of coordination and thought about how to how to make this happen, right? Right. So I really like the – I think all six of our articles uh, were really great because – you know, we, we kind of, we, we talked a little bit about politics, talked about sustainability, we talked about some successes, and we're talking about deployment of new technology. Um, you know, from jelly cubes, imagine a green hydrogen truck refrigerated, refrigerated by jelly cubes taking sea. <laughs> Powered by offshore wind that produces more fish. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We're going to be seeing these puppies in Boston. Man. <laughs> That's right. Uh Maybe they'll have like a fishing tour of the uh, wind turbine site. That'd be great. Well, I tell you what, uh, we've gone two weeks now without a guest, and uh, we are hoping to have a guest in. Uh, you know, I've been looking for somebody in the ag tech space, so we hope to have a guest very soon because everyone is buzzing about ag tech with food inflation right now uh, being so prominent and and the scarcity of potential fertilizers and food because, excuse me, of the Ukraine Russia situation. I think I saw a statistic, 40% of the world's fertilizer ingredients come out of Russia. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, something like, I think a billion people are fed by grains that come out of the Ukraine on an annual basis. Yeah, I heard something like that, yeah. You know, and, and hats off, we really, let's salute the Ukrainian farmers, especially most Ukrainian farmers, the breadbasket is in eastern Ukraine, where all the fighting is still taking place. And they were showing farmers wearing flak jackets getting into their tractors and working every day. Mm. So, you know, let's salute these people because we have it so much easier. We shouldn't take for granted, you know, what we're doing. So when, yep. when people are going to be complaining about the cost of food, just imagine this Ukrainian farmer getting his product to market with artillery flying over his head. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, uh, great, great week, man. Great articles. Uh, Lucas, why don't we talk a little bit about where people can go to find us, promote us, enjoy us, love us? 
<laughs> yeah. You can find us on your favorite podcasting site. Uh, we're on most podcasting sites. You just click the follow or the subscribe button or whatever they have. Um, and tell your friends. Uh, tell your friends if you found this engaging or interesting. And uh, ask them to subscribe. We're also on YouTube. If you want to go through the articles with us and see our beautiful faces, uh, just go to YouTube, search for Pirates of Clean Tech, hit subscribe, and then make sure you click the uh, alarm bell. Um, and comment on the video if you have a comment. Uh, we'd like to hear from you suggestions more information discussions feel free so yeah by the way i want to call out hubspot uh the sales marketing software because they've had these great commercials recently where they're using pirates as a setting so (laughs) we're thinking they probably stole their idea from us Mm. we just want to give them permission you know to use the pirate setting for their new commercials on sales and marketing software. <laughs> we, we give permission. We're, uh, yeah, that's how it, we're influencers. We don't even know. I don't even know what influencer means as a word, but apparently. <laughs> You're it. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, great episode. Thank you, everybody, for subscribing. Everyone have a great Earth Day. Please you know, do a little bit of reflecting and think about what you could be doing to make the world a little bit more of a sustainable place. But with that, I am Eric Clayton. I am Lucas Finko. And we are Pirates of Thinking. <laughs> <laughs>